Hello, and welcome to Convergently Speaking. Today on the podcast, we have an interview with Jamie Ryan. Jamie is a social worker, counselor, and a TAFE educator who has worked in the mental health sector for about 25 years, so has tons of experience. He and Dan met when they were both lecturing for a certificate for in mental health a few years back, and today you're going to hear them chatting about some positive changes in the mental health sector, as well as Jamie will share some of his personal stories, which we're really honored that he's shared with us. Uh, it's a really great chat. Hope you enjoy. I'm really happy to have Jamie here today. I haven't done a a one-on-one a conversation for the podcast for a while. So as as much as I love doing it on my own, it's always a a real treasure, a real uh, treat to be able to have someone. And we're in person today, which is nice. Mm-hmm. Places in the world where you <laughs> couldn't do that right now. So we're grateful for that. My friend Jamie, who I I've known through work, we're both involved in running. Uh, a course in mental health and we've stayed in touch since then and so when I was thinking about who would be good to have on to speak you know just from well you can speak for yourself in a sec but you know Jamie's had a a life time of experience working in a a variety of different sectors in the, the people helping industry and so yeah that's why I thought I'd have you come along thank you Dan no worries. Nice to be here. Yeah. Awesome. Um, so I don't know if maybe we, we start with you talking a little bit about what you're up to now in, mm. in your life and we can sort of go from there because you're doing some pretty, I think, some pretty interesting things, some pretty new stuff mm. um, within the, the mental health sector here in Australia. Yeah, so happy to start. So yeah, thank you so much for the invitation. It's really nice to be here and and as you've already said, it's just so nice to actually be in person mm. with somebody because it's um very difficult at the moment, of course, and impossible for so many people as well. So so it's really nice just to be here. Where I'm at at the moment, I suppose in terms of what drives me and and also what keeps me very busy is that I'm a social worker, what they call an accredited mental health social worker and I have been probably for for about seven or eight years but I've been a social worker so a mental health clinician for close to I guess probably about 26 years so obviously I'm not 26 years old (laughs) Um, so in my mid 50s or just about to officially hit my mid 50s but I do feel that my career has gone through some really positive and interesting changes and necessary changes over time what kind of drives me at the moment is probably about a year ago the change kind of occurred i'm an educator so i work for for tafe and so in the vocational education training sector so the courses that we that we run are very practical and aimed at actually making people fit for work so once they've got the qualifications through TAFE they're ready for work mm. and they're ready for whatever they need to do so historically I did do a diploma in alcohol and other drugs and that was pretty cool um, I enjoyed that did that for a few years um, but more recently I'm doing what's called certificate four in mental health peer work and I kind of migrated across really from 
from the mental health support work which you'd mentioned earlier mm. and so that was involved in training up people to work as mental health support workers that um, certification had been tailored to making people or equipping people to be able to provide psychosocial rehabilitation and support and I did enjoy that I did that for quite a long time uh, and enjoyed training up that workforce I couldn't tell you how many people went through that but probably been doing that for about seven or eight years and then I really connected with with someone else at TAFE and and around, so the coordinator of peer work and had thought to myself that this might be something that I'd really like to do and the driver for that had been probably probably twofold the first thing was that I was feeling a little bit stale in the qualification that I was teaching and what happened what happens in that qualification so mental health support work that so many people had come through that course with lived experience but because it was not a course where people would honor their lived experience you want to explain what lived experience yeah. is for those that might don't be good. know yeah certainly <laughs> the notion of lived experience is really just talking about a person who has an experience of mental ill health mm. Uh, and that could be episodic or that could be long term. And what we're talking about really with lived experience is someone who has been impacted by their experience of that mental ill health. Mm. And so we would be familiar, people would be familiar diagnostically with anxiety and depression. People might have heard of schizophrenia or bipolar, so a very clinical diagnosis. But essentially, a person doesn't have to have a diagnosis to of course to have lived experience mm. and so with lived experience and what we talk about and what we've been talking about in mental health services for a very long time in South Australia is probably about 15 years plus when services really began to change mm. and really embrace recovery oriented services is that lived experience has not really been honored yeah has not been respected has not been seen as being something that has been a significant and worthwhile you know contribution to services so my involvement in the qualification really had been and so I'm a person who has had lived experience and I used to I'll just share this with you because I used to think probably didn't vocalize it but I used to think to myself I've had significant lived experience mm, right mm. and of course what does that really mean? Well, yeah. you know, how do I describe what significant, significant means? And that could be anything. But essentially, what it meant was that it in interrupted my life. Mm. It interrupted my trajectory. It interrupted, you know, had impact on my relationships and had impact on my financial situation uh, and created, you know, quite a lot of distress and disturbance in my life. So that's really yeah. what significant means. So, yeah. And so lived experience can be, you know, very different for... For different people of course and it's absolutely unique to everybody but with my lived experience uh, when I was much younger it really sort of interrupted my trajectory and so I became a clinician I became a social worker and really embraced that and so I moved from teaching a qualification where people were trained to support people who had episodes of, of ill health and mental ill health and I enjoyed that and I really found that to be something that was really pretty much my bread and butter mm. having worked in mental mm. health services for a long time and I mean this is where we came across one another and so mm. like 
if I just jump in here, I, I sort of slot into the story at some point along here where, you know, you and I were running this course and we're trying to train these people to work with those with their own mental health issues. And yet what I found and what you found probably more times than I did was that people with lived experience were overwhelmingly the ones that were attracted to study a certificate in mental health because their experience made them, you know, be able to feel a level of empathy that the rest of the population doesn't usually have. And so from what I hear you saying and what I understand is that you are working in that space, seeing a need for training these people who are going to work in this space and also acknowledging their lived experience simultaneous and not just acknowledging Mm. it, but actually starting to see it as not a liability, but Mm. I think it's a beautiful strength and gift to anyone who um, has a support worker that's not just there to help them out um, because they're a kind and compassionate person because they can also relate to that that person. It's a really good and keen observation that you make because... So, so just talking about what you've just said, so obviously having met you and you were involved in that course and you would, have, you would have had some of these observations absolutely as well, I became more and more aware of the fact that even like probably about 80% of mm. those people within that course had had lived experience or were very close to someone who had lived experience. Yes. And yeah. so what, what happened in that course was, and this is also part of my frustration, I think that I never really named that frustration, but I became more increasingly aware of it probably in hindsight, but also at, at the end of my teaching of that course was that I wanted to share and connect more with people around their lived experience. But what it is is that when you teach these qualifications, it's, it's obviously content based it's got to be about achieving competencies and we don't really have time just to go off on these tangents and talk about these other things but the thing is that these tangents are the things that i feel passionate about and Mm. these tangents are the things that i really want to share with other people and these tangents are you know these conversations are what i want to have with people about you know how did how did that work for you and how did that make you feel and you know what are you you know what strengths did you get from from your experience because of course what happens is that we know with adversity we either kind of just get through it or or you know we we fall over or we we even we become better for it we become stronger and richer and Mm. i've had those experiences and you've had Mm. those experiences Mm. and you know this is how we learn and how we grow so noticing that stuff within the classroom setting where so many people sometimes would disclose often would just not feel comfortable or even in their own recovery just not wanting to even begin to comprehend how they could have those those class conversations but also how do you share those conversations with people that you work alongside in the field when your primary focus is not to not to have those conversations because you're not a peer worker yes you're a support worker and a peer worker is a person who's got that lived experience and is a support worker simultaneous just for yeah. for those that don't know the the lingo yeah um, absolutely so, yeah. so and that's a really important distinction what happened for me was that because i was fortunate enough to connect up with another team member who i was aware that she was teaching peer work and it's quite a new qualification as well dan so five or six years so it hasn't been around for a long time so peer work in South Australia as a discrete profession has, and in terms of sitting within services, has been around for 10 years plus, 
but in terms of a qualification it's still quite new and that's exciting I mean that's the stuff that that really excites me too because I am a professional I'm a clinician I'm an, obviously an educator and the thing that we need in the workforce is that we need consistency mm. we need uh, professionalism we need credibility accountability all of those things that you know that are the hallmarks of a profession there also needs to be a knowledge base and a skill you know skill base and all those things and a lot of those things have not only been denied to peer work as a profession they've actually been ignored mm. and so there needs to be more research, there needs to be more understanding and there needs to be more of this embedded within services. So with this kind of chronology of what happened for me was that I was able to join the peer work team, as it were. When I say peer work team, it's like there's one, there's the coordinator yeah. um, and super short staff. So it worked out, you know, worked out for her and it worked out for me. So I was able to come on board because uh, there just needed to be another person essentially there in that role so that was about a year and a half ago and the key yeah. difference then was that you became or you maintained being a clinician mm. an educator uh, but then you incorporated in this other element which mm. you professionally hadn't been allowed to mm. able to incorporate of your own lived experience and i know we've talked about it a bit in the past but it would be great to hear a bit of that story of how you mm. what that was like because you know we're talking about people with a lived experience of mental health issues you know there's not many people I think in this day and age that haven't experienced a period of time in their lives where um, if they'd gone and seen a psychologist they could have got some sort of a you know a clinical diagnosis or, or whatever you know we've all experienced different different things and yet we all walk around pretending like like we haven't mm. or we're told that we're we're expected to um you know pretend we've got it all together so you'd had a career where you'd now obviously it was earlier in your life but still you had a career where you'd been taught implicitly or maybe explicitly i don't know to not talk about certain parts of your life mm. and all of a sudden here you are being you know well you i don't know words you want to put it in but yeah. required to talk about absolutely and there's been so many emotions that have been stirred up around all of this the thing about peer work which is really important just to kind of just to kind of stop and just sort of be really clear about the peer work role was that but what's so not attractive but what's so powerful about it is is the is the connection and the bond around shared lived experience mm. so mm. it of course human beings you know experience uh, things in so many different ways and every experience is completely unique and special and it doesn't have to be profound but of course some of these experiences and some of these emotions that we have are absolutely so profound but thinking about lived experiences that and the connection around and the work that can be done around this that can actually aid a person's recovery and also support them to, you know, it really is about, you know, living the best life that you can lead mm. and, and also about the quality of life that is, you know, that, that is so rich. So coming back to just your comment or your observations about, I guess, how it happened for me was so when I, when I had my experience of being quite unwell and being impacted in obviously not a good way and so it happened very unexpectedly you know hindsight's a beautiful thing where you go back and you know you could talk about pre-morbid and morbid so for using clinical terms about you know the development of you know the illness kind of process or pathology so i know all that now but for me it was quite unexpected and it was very life-changing and in a negative way so not not a good way at the time so what it did for me with those experiences and those illness episodes was that 
it made it really kind of drew a sharp focus where I I, I realised and some people had said to me, hey, you'd be good at you know maybe being a social worker at helping other people, and I had thought when I was younger that I would be a journalist or that none of this astronaut stuff, but <laughs> <laughs> I probably had thought about that for a bit. But seriously, but I, I always loved literature and I always loved reading and I always loved exploring and I've always been quite reflective. At some stages, absolutely too reflective, you know, because yeah. of course you can be. I can relate to that. Absolutely. That's why I'm sharing that with you <laughs> because we, we share that as well. Absolutely. But so it just seemed to be a kind of a next step for me to then to study social work. And so essentially this kind of stuff happened. And then so I was actually studying at uni at the time when it happened, when I first became unwell and I was studying philosophy and English and politics, all of which I loved, absolutely. And the subject that I probably loved the most was philosophy. Um, but essentially, this interruption occurred and, you know, it really was a quite a break, mm. like quite a, quite a nasty break, quite a nasty thing that occurred. And so I found myself thinking, well, what the hell am I going to do now? And so... As I said, it, it seemed to be, I mean, I don't really believe in destiny or anything or you know, anything necessarily like that or fate, but it seemed to be fairly natural for me then to move into social work. So mm. the reason why I'm sharing this with you in the way that I am is because what happened when this happened for me, it just seemed to be natural that I would move into a helping profession. And I've always been quite caring and I've always been quite sensitive and of course, I learned the skills about listening to other people and, you know, working within mental health. But at that time, there was no peer work and there was no there was no conversation about, you know, about about what would happen and, and how you would how you you know, how that might have happened for me. So I then had another episode and I'd only been working as a social worker for a couple of years, uh, not even that long, actually. And that was a very tricky thing mm. to navigate in so many ways because there I was working in mental health and I'd had this mental health episode and found myself, you know, being in hospital and really being very unwell and of course not something that you could talk about, not something that you're allowed to talk about, not something that you could share or honour and and it wasn't something that I wanted to share and it sure. wasn't something that I wanted to honour because it was embarrassing and it was painful and it was at the heart of me about how I'd failed again and all of those all of that stuff was, you know, very real and very very dynamic, but also just what am I gonna do now? And you know, it's interesting having this conversation to me because you would appreciate as we've shared some conversations is that I haven't really talked about this very much at all. Yeah, yeah. So and that's a lot of the shift, isn't it? That's yeah, and that of, has been. Yeah, yeah, and that has been a big shift. So, so those years that I spent not not really hiding it, but it was just something that was part of me that was not that was not something that could be shared. So, getting through those episodes and returning to work and basically recovering and then then you know dealing with with the fallout in terms of what happened in my relationships and what happened to to me as a person had been very challenging and at times quite distressful. But I've thought about this so much, Dan, over the years. And of course, I haven't really talked about it a lot, but I've thought about it a lot and sort of turned it over and over and over at times and like ruminated too much mm -hmm. on it as well. And 
when I think about the work that I do now in in therapy that I do now and what you know what success looks like or what change looks like or what progress might mean and what quality of life looks like for different people when I reflect on my own experience it seems that not only have I been incredibly blessed and I don't use that in a religious way Mm. but just the fact you know being able to be blessed to be able to have a brain and have a body that works but also to be able to recover and not have to take medication anymore all those kind of things are really powerful and really are blessings so I have a lot of gratitude around that but thinking about the work that I do now about what makes success and then thinking about well what happened why was it different for me how could it be that I was able to continue with my career had a very successful career in public mental health services became a manager a senior manager you know I climbed that beautiful ladder now i'm being a bit silly because you know seriously i've worked out that it's not about climbing the ladder it took me a little bit of while (laughs) i was able to do that stuff and that it worked really well for me so what was it about about my experience that made it possible when i i don't know i mean (laughs) there is no there ain't no magic wand there is no you know formula for that and clearly i'm not you know i'm not saying that um I'm fully recovered and I'm not like I've moved away from it and that I'm a different person. But I think thinking back on on it now, I was very fortunate and I had some real challenges that I had to deal with, but I was able to grab onto my career, be able to find a person that I could share my life with, have a family, remain in that family and then kind of and move through all of that stuff in a really positive way. So do you feel like you you integrated that experience? Is that how you're... Or did you... Because you've obviously... You've thought about it and you've turned it over in your mind. So it feels like an element of integration and ownership of what happened. um, That as opposed to minimizing and pretending you never went through all that. And Hmm. um, clearly it's informed your practice now. And I wonder if that's part of the part of the the puzzle is how you got through it i mean that's a lot of what i talk about in my practice and on the podcast you know it's like whatever pain we don't transform we end up transmitting Mm. um and we can actually transmit that to ourselves. obviously you know if we don't deal with whatever grief or guilt or whatever we have it can kind of eat us up inside but that's not what i'm hearing you saying i'm hearing Mm. you sort of potentially integrating that and I have thought about it a lot and I guess what's been happening most recently and really just the last 12 months mm. is I've been thinking about what it's all meant. It's clearly informed what I do and continues to inform what I do. Mm. I think this this notion of integration, I mean, I quite like that word and also about what you just said about this notion of, you know, transmitting because, mm. of course, if we don't integrate our experiences and, and transcend those experiences then we're going to be at the mercy of that pain mm. and that suffering and it will linger yes. and of course we will potentially project it onto others but we might move forward just in terms of my own practice but certainly my own self-awareness and understanding so I guess we use this word insight in psychiatry all yes. the time is that I have developed a greater insight into what it's meant for me and because I've been required to in peer work to share this experience where before I had zero disclosure in pretty much every, you know everywhere every domain of my life all of a sudden I've been required to share in terms of the teaching it's been really quite challenging mm. when I first started teaching peer work I went through a kind of a range of emotions and thinking about 
what what I can offer, you know, how I can teach. But most importantly, if I'm doing peer work now as an educator, okay, I can tick the box. I've got lived experience. That's good. Well, that's mm. probably necessary because I can get what we're talking about. I can share that share that with students. But what does that really look like? Because I've never done it before. Yeah. Just for context, you know, you've studied social work. I've studied counselling, and I'm guessing here but i know studying counseling there's a lot about the topic of self-disclosure and you know it's generally speaking wherever you're working it's zero zero to minimal is what you learn to do and was what you're told to do no no it's not about you and you know you don't need to talk about any you know this kind of it's not appropriate to, to disclose especially in certain contexts like in government mental health you know as you say zero so there's some pretty strong like habits and wiring that all of a sudden you're you're telling the the neural pathways in your brain rewire do it a different way now um so it's pretty scary yeah so you know my experience in mental health services working in mental health service for a long time was that you know you wear your name badge and it's only your first name you never have your last name so like be really safe be really secure and absolutely zero disclosure but when you talk about clinical social work practice, it's that, yes, we use ourselves, we use what we've got, you know, we talk about our strengths. So my practice has always been strength-based and strength-focused, but it's still been absolutely enshrined in the medical model of practice. Yeah, yeah. And when we had the change in South Australia, you know, 10 years ago, where there's been shift towards recovery-based practice, we've got the person that we work with who is driving their experiences and and their recovery and we're not telling people what to do it's about collaboration Mm. so that's that's the world's briefest kind of introduction (laughs) yeah it's about putting control and power back in their hands because being mentally unwell is disempowering to begin with absolutely Uh, and all the stigma around it and the fact that people you know have had have lost so much already and have had so much taken away why would we continue to do that? So recovery onto practice is about how people can reclaim their self and their power, as you've said. So thinking about all of all of the work that I had done, so then to have to be faced with, well, how do I disclose? How do I share? You know, because to be in that moment is an absolute privilege. To be with somebody in a room is, is absolute privilege. But what I need to do is that I need to be able to be at my best mm. and I need to be able to be thinking about what can I what can I do in this moment so that the person can actually learn and grow and reciprocate mm. and feel safe. And so then I've been asked, so I'm just talking about my educational role, I've been asked to then share about myself. And what I'd done historically was that I had been that social worker, certainly in, probably in the first part of my career with a clipboard and a little pen and sitting there, you know, safe behind my clipboard and my pen and taking down the notes and being very aware sometimes when I was having conversations with people that your experience is actually pretty similar to mine, but I've not been able to tap into that. It's just been an absolute no-no. It's like, you know, it's just something that I cannot share. So now here I am as an educator, you know, being asked to embrace that experience, being asked to almost not relive it, but because that's just re-trauma, re-traumatizing, and we don't do that but about what is meaningful about the experience and how can I share that. And part of what is at the core of peer work is this notion of what they call mutuality and reciprocity. Mm -hmm. So 
that means essentially I will learn from you and you will learn from me. But my primary task in this exchange of ideas and support and mutuality and reciprocity is that I want for you to be able to learn from your experience, to grow, to recover, etc. And so when when I started to be asked to do that, and I've got this, not quite the sea of faces, but there I am standing in front of a class. Remember when we used to do yeah, that? Yeah, sure, I do. And the world has changed quite a bit now, yeah, but right. uh, hopefully we'll get back to be able to do more of that face-to-face teaching. But to be able to be standing in front of a class and then to share quite openly, um, not the details of my experience, not about, you know, about how difficult or how damaging it might have been, but really to share about what worked and how I grew from that experience. That's what the essence of peer work and that role and the connection and bond is about. That's what I was being asked to do. Mm-hmm. So, and that's where the emotions really kicked in. And I found myself when I first started, you know, to talk about this and to engage in disclosure that was meaningful and appropriate and succinct and beneficial was that I found myself becoming quite emotional mm, thinking mm. about it because I'd not done it before. Yeah, yeah. So I'd not Fair explored enough. it. And what, and what was the response from those that were hearing that? Well, the response was actually very favourable and what happened within that classroom setting the first time I just, I guess, tapped into some of my own experience around it to share it with others was that I remember... There was a student who, after I just started talking about it all, she kind of gingerly kind of put up her hand and she basically said, oh, Jamie, thank you so much for sharing that on behalf of the class. Mm. Just wanted to really acknowledge that you have been able to share that with us and just wanted to say thank you for doing that. Mm. So what happened in that moment was that I felt not only incredibly grateful that that I'd been able to offer something that was meaningful and that they had, you know, but I was also getting a whole lot of love back, Mm, really, mm, you know, getting a whole lot of acknowledgement and validation back from Mm. not just from her, but also from the class. So it felt really good um, and it felt very different because I'd not been there before. But essentially, it's also the learning tool because a line had been kind of drawn in the sand before where I'd been a TAFE educator and I'd been a clinician and that's nice and that's good and I had lived experience and that's necessary but they hadn't actually seen Mm. me talking about that and sharing it. Mm. So then you can see what what shifted and not not only did it shift in the dynamic in the classroom, of course it shifted for me Mm. and I thought, well, yeah, I can actually do this and I I do have something to offer and what happens i think with lived experience especially when you share often often if not always very difficult or very challenging but talking about what you do what i do you know our jobs are to support and encourage and coach and you know enrich and and listen all those things that we do in the counselling coaching roles, essentially what we want to do is that we want to bring out the best in other people and we want for people to to discover what that looks like. Mm, mm. And I I think within that moment or within that class, I was able to shift and realise that I had something to offer. And that's what I want to do. I want to be able to to offer something so and and to make it meaningful. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah, wow. That's Thanks for sharing. That's really... 
profound to think about and you know the natural question that comes to me is how has this change in your your TAFE role and your educator role impacted your counseling role because you know we haven't been that explicit but you do see clients as well you're mm. a part-time educator and a part-time mm. counseling social worker has that had flow-on effects to the way that you work with clients and it has and i've been thinking about it a lot and and about what it means and how my practice might change and it's been quite challenging to think about well what will it mean for me and, and what will i do and oh my goodness gracious me if i'm a clinical worker how can i possibly ever you know bring this work into my practice as well and and when i've been talking to peer workers about this and also to other TAFE people about it who are aware of you know of my lived experience or certainly having this role now within TAFE it's like well can you be one can you be the other or can you be both Mm. I found it initially very uncomfortable and also I just didn't know Mm. what it would mean or what it could mean I have responsibilities to the clients that I work with and I use yeah and I use this knowledge base but tapping into my lived experience around this is something that will continue to evolve. Mm. And when you invite me back in five <laughs> years' time... <laughs> yeah, well, no. Or I two mean, years' time. You're, yeah, I yeah. mean, we've explained all this, but it probably hasn't come through the degree to which... I don't want to embarrass you with this, but you are kind of on the cutting edge of something that's happening in the, in, mm. in the mental health and mental health sector formally, but therapy therapy kind of space in general mm. i suppose or social work space or however you want to frame it um these are uncharted territories we've had in the language for a long time let's break down stigma mm. um but there was a lot of um lip service i think and it made its way into the curriculum of different courses that and, and you know we've seen it through the workforce where you can now access uh therapy if you need it and all that you know it is slowly filtering through but it's one thing to keep it high level theoretical let's break down stigma it's another thing to actually get in the trenches and you know Mm -hmm. to do that to talk about the stuff that you know i remember a few years ago we had that um greens uh politician who had mental health issues and that was spoken about publicly and i thought Mm -hmm. wow that's that's new you know, I can't remember the name of the guy now. You might mm. remember. But, yeah, so I didn't necessarily expect you to have a, a mm. fully developed answer because, you know, you're working it out as you go. It's, Absolutely. It's not, it's not yeah. theoretical. It's actually- I, f- I find myself in a space where, and I've had some of these conversations and they continue to evolve. I I've, I've ha- find myself having these conversations not only with students about me sitting in this kind of interesting space because mm. it is, you know, it's and it really is... It's a beautiful space to sit in and it's and it's a wonderful place to be like now because 25 years ago or when I you know when I started out being a social worker it was something to be ashamed of to have lived experience and I thought about this for a long time and I thought I've lost 10 years of my life mm. to these things that happened to me that I had no control over that you know really impacted on me in such a way but what has what has been so special about working alongside students and so these are students who have lived experience who could be anything from 18 to you know 65 so across the lifespan is that 
I've become to realize more and more that and I just don't want to be cliche here but it's 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 like a special gift that I've been given mm. because not only am I well enough to be able to talk about it in an informed positive you know and hopefully you know educational way but what it means for me as a person is that I've been offered these experiences which have been when I first had them so earth-shattering and so devastating and so so difficult to get through and you know feeling suicidal and feeling incredibly depressed those things were just part of the day that I had yeah but this is all ancient history now yeah, thank yeah, goodness sure. but because I then was able to embark on a career and then embrace a career in social work and then do the things that I've done is that I now can do a bit of a meld, but I don't know what the meld really looks like yeah. because it's very new to me using my lived experience. It's one thing to be able to teach in that space and I can do it quite well and I feel confident and I feel competent in being able to do that. It's very different from working in a therapeutic mm. role. And so then to think about how do I incorporate that into, into my role, the way that I can talk about it is that I'm tapping more into, into more more of my intuition mm -hmm. i'm tapping more mm -hmm. into just this understanding of being open to be able to share mm. so the thing that's so powerful about about lived experience is that of course i i can have this lived experience you can have a lived experience and i can be crushed by it i can be destroyed by it or in terms of my own recovery i can be emboldened by it i can be enriched by it I've also had very strong spiritual experiences, so that's all part and parcel of what makes me. It's all about my identity, so it's not it, it's not separate. It's all you know. It's all part of who I am. So I use spirituality in my sessions that I work with people. I, you know, I love having conversations with people about about values and beliefs and about God and about existence. I like these conversations because these conversations are about our lives as humans mm. and about our connectedness with each other mm. but with the broader world and our internal world so having lived experience is something that i used to feel like i'd lost time i used to feel like i'd i lost my place in the world and wasn't really sure where i was where i was going but if it wasn't for that of course we wouldn't be having this conversation mm, if it wasn't right. for all of those things that have happened i wouldn't have actually become a social worker if I hadn't had those experiences, I wouldn't be teaching what I teach. And the thing is that this is the happiest that I've that I've actually been. Like I, I've, you know, talk about happiness, another conversation for another day. But this has offered me something that has I've been able to have a career. But also part of my core belief in the way that I operate is that because I am so blessed in having a healthy body and a healthy mind, I have a responsibility to do something with that. Mm. Mm. So it's not about it's not about making money. I, I'm fortunate that I have a career and I can make money out of what I do, but that's not the driver. The driver is what can I offer, how can I help, and and most importantly, how can I support others to maybe tap into their potential. And that's what we share in common. Yes, yeah, is that sure. is that we're fortunate enough, you know, we're privileged enough to be able to have these conversations that will hopefully enrich a person's life. But mm. but I'm all about this notion of discovery and self-discovery. And what I also believe very strongly and quite profoundly is that, you know, looking at our dark side 
or exposing, you know, some of these terrors that we are confronted with, whether it's life or death or, mm. you know, all these things that are part of what makes us human. These are the things that we need to look at. These mm. are the these are the, the demons that need to be exposed. And some of what happened what has happened in my illness is those demons have been brought to the fore, absolutely. Yeah, well you mentioned spirituality and like what was coming to mind was that, you know, in times gone past we we really call these types of experiences a, a dark night of the soul or a or a spiritual crisis or you know before we had all these clinical diagnoses and stuff like that i mean i wasn't there but the the understanding i have from history was there was actually more understanding and acceptance of the the melancholy kind of dark kind of uh you know, the good and the bad of life because it was much more pure survival, you know. People were just trying to put food on a, on the table to a degree that you and I can't really relate to. Mm. Um, and so I wonder how much it's changed uh, over the last, say, 100 years where we kind of don't know what to do with this stuff when we have a friend that's going through something really difficult. You know, in the typical Western context, someone gets diagnosed with cancer, mm. uh, all their friends tend to, you know, nick off, you know, like, and you, that's where we get the saying, you know, who your true friends are because we're not so accustomed to um, grief and, and, mm. and working through that stuff. So, you know, a big part of my agenda, and, and it is an agenda, is to, to, help people realize and embrace the the pain and tragedy of life that and and work through that and i use the word again integrate that stuff to end up it can sound trite but yeah happier more content more have more meaning in their life because they haven't got to their mid 50s as a person who's actually refused to deal with stuff and now they've actually got um a heap of chronic physical and mental illnesses and challenges and stuff uh, because it all builds up mm. um so it's fantastic to hear that real life story of of that and that's not the way you're fra- you're not framing it that you had courage to go there but i didn't feel but, very courageous at all like no it was kind of survival and then it was like oh yeah that was that happened to me two years ago that happened to me 10 years ago that happened to me 20 years ago so but it's it is courageous you know it is and i guess that's maybe something that i've learned is that and certainly when i teach and see people and hear people's stories about and of course all the stuff they're still going through you know the the side effects of medication the you know the the being readmitted to hospital the ending up in emergency departments the 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 suicidal thoughts and attempts and it's not like you know it's not like i'm not trying to paint a picture that people are are, are like are super unwell but it's just you know what you're talking about is that this is real this is what happens mm. to all of us you know to varying degrees and the thing is that you know this this whole thing about human experience i mean there's a shift now we're talking about well-being and we're talking more about well-being rather than happiness mm. i love the word contentment mm. i love that word i love the way that it sounds i know exactly where i was and when it was in terms of that moment that I realized that I was actually feeling content mm, mm. and it hasn't it wasn't decades ago 
was probably about five years ago but I actually remember exactly where I was I was driving down the road and I and the sun was shining and I just had this kind of realization it wasn't an epiphany it wasn't anything powerful or particularly spiritual but it was just this sense of I actually feel really good Mm. and I actually feel really quite content and I and it's in such a stark contrast to how I'd been before that it was you know really quite marked I think coming back just to you know some of the comments that you make about you know what we do and how you know we see ourselves as well even just very briefly what you've made mention about how illnesses are pathologized and I've worked in, in the clinical world where it's always been about diagnosis and treatment but the world is changing it is. And it's changing so much mm. and it's changing in, in lots of good ways too. And I, and that's what I'm about too, is I'm thinking that particularly with peer work and talking about recovery is that the evidence is building, you know, more research is being done. So not just stuff that's anecdotal, but the research is being put together. And we know that, you know, lived experience in peer work is offers such a contribution to people's recovery that we need to do more of it. We need to have a bigger workforce. We need to be, you know, really clear about, you know, what we can do to support people to actually get through. I often think about what would it have been like if I had a peer worker mm. when I was unwell? What would it have meant to me? And, of course, I'll never know because I no. don't know. Yeah. But when I work with these students and I, and I see how engaged they are in the learning and and some of these students are already working in the workforce and some of these students of course are looking to get jobs and with the assessments that we do and the conversations that we have in class I think man you're going to be amazing you're going to be absolutely incredible at what you do because not only like counseling 101 even though peer workers aren't counselors per se but rapport building and active listening and validating and just sharing their experiences in in such a way that it enables a person to you know feel connected to another human being who might begin to understand mm. what it might have been like to have gone through that experience it's so powerful when i was very unwell i had a social worker who came to see me uh, at home there's two primary things that i remember about my interactions with him and the and the first thing was that we used to go walking around the block and that was good for me to get out of the small space that I was in, away from the other people that I was sharing with. But also I was quite agitated and feeling quite restless because of the medication, so it was good to walk. And so we would walk around the block. And I remember, you know, he'd seen me for a number of weeks, might have been five or six times, something like that. And it got to this point and I was and I was getting much better and feeling stronger even though I didn't really feel it at the time. But he must have known. He would yeah, have known. Sure. Yeah. Um, and I asked him to do something for me. Oh, you know, it's just something quite simple, you know, thinking about now, you know, but it was something that I didn't really feel comfortable in or confident. Oh, can you do that for me? And he said, no, you need to do that yourself. And so even now I remember I felt kind of a bit put out. I didn't feel angry, but I felt kind of a bit upset. And, but of course what he was doing was, you know, giving me some of my power back or yeah. enabling me, you know, because yeah. he knew that I was ready to do that. So that was, you know, that was something that I that I still remember to this day. And then also I do remember when I stopped seeing him that I thought, well, yeah, this social work gig, maybe I could do yeah. that. And it wasn't even really fully formed. But after several incomplete degrees and lots of soul searching and you know periods of unwellness and lots of periods of wellness 
I kind of gravitated towards it. Mm. And even when I was studying social work, I became sick as well. Mm. But I was I got lots of good support, so I was able to complete that you know complete that degree and do what I needed to do to get through. I am absolutely so excited that peer work is going to be something that's going to be something for the future and that will offer I think it can only enrich an individual's recovery and I think what we're talking about is a transformation of service provision Mm. so what we've got now is we've got peer workers who sit within services and they are listened to and I think respect is slowly building and the profession is something that is you know is finding its feet and that's what the qualification is doing too it's actually professionalizing it needs to be professional but i think that for the future um what it will mean is that the workforce will grow and that it will offer so much more than what is being offered now and we you know that saying about throwing the baby out with the bathwater i'm not interested in that Mm. it's not about having a revolution i think that the best change and the best growth comes from transformation and transcendence. Revolutions historically have been quite violent, have been, you know, one replaces one thing with another thing. Yes. But I think we need to transform. And I'm hoping that peer workers will actually be, you know, in charge of services, at the front of services, will shape services. And I think maybe that's really what what I'd like to see. I mean, I'm being, t- you know, totally honest with you. I think that's what we probably need to see. Yeah. Because the medical model has served a purpose. It's not like we're going to throw out the medical model because medication is very beneficial for so many people and not just beneficial but absolutely necessary. But I do think that the approach to to discovery and recovery and also to really for people to understand and connect with other people with those that have had lived experience is actually an essential part of what what we need to do. Yeah, I mean, I think the medical model is vitally important, but I I think it needs to be used for what it's good at. And Mm. that's more the the crisis side of things. And and it can do more than that. Um, But we know that we have a mental health crisis going on in Western society especially. And so... You know, what is it? The definition of insanity is doing the same thing you've always done and expecting a different result. One of my favourite quotes. Yeah. (laughs) So true, though. I mean, it it is. It it is. Like, you know, no one's going to come and argue a case that we're we're all over it with mental health treatment and we're getting it all right. So I absolutely am an advocate for for the um, medical model in the right context because (laughs) I've I've seen the opposite where someone really needs medical intervention clinical intervention and they've been referred to someone that's not trained you know severe Mm. trauma had Mm. a client with severe trauma and that you know so it goes both ways um so i'm really excited to see communication and mutual respect Mm. between those two paradigms and see you know someone might be seeing someone in a clinical space and then finds a find a level of wellness and then can actually move on to um not just survive, not just cope, not just, you know, not be suicidal, you know, <laughs> multiple times a day, but actually start to thrive and and give back. And I suppose that's what we've touched on today, you know, yeah. these things that, that we can do to change the system to then empower. I don't really like the word empower, but, you know, empower and let let people have that power back that they've <laughs> lost. Um, 
So yeah, I'm 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 with you on that. Is what yeah, I was saying in a long way. <laughs> absolutely, and I and I I agree with you. And I think that the other thing that's really important about this transformation of services for it to happen is there has to be a bridge. There's got to be. Mm. So what is what has happened historically, and what has informed practices within services as there has been a distrust of each other. You know, those with you know from the clinical professions have not trusted yes. the people that have lived experience because it has not seemed to be professional, was not seemed to not seen to add value. You know, there hasn't been and because there hasn't been, you know, the university degree or the, you know, the experience or the specialization that has been just part of, you know, being a clinical psychologist, being a social worker, being an occupational therapist. But the real transition and the real transformation will be this growing trust and this growing understanding and we have to acknowledge that specialization is required absolutely mm. specialization so we've got to have the surgeons who know how to operate and do the work that they do and they have been through you know years of medical training and you know if i entrust my body to a specialist because i want to have you know, obviously an organ removed or whatever it might be or a broken leg fixed then i want they need to know what they're doing so there has to be specialization and i get that and I guess what's, what, what I'm thinking and what I'm hoping will happen is that with peer work hopefully being embraced and a transformation of services where we want in order and see the other thing too, and I'm sorry, I'm going off a little bit on a tangent here, but what happens so often for services in services is that people don't get access to services. They're afraid to go to services. You know, there are all these issues around services, but just imagine if we had a service where it would be peer led or peer run. And so... The, the promotion of those services, the connection with those services, you know, the interface that you would have with someone, you would meet someone for the first time, how that would look, how that exchange might go, how the safety would be there, how we'd be automatically to be trauma-informed care. It mm. wouldn't be re-traumatizing. We wouldn't be putting somebody in a sterile room and, you know, holding them in a cubicle and whacking them full of medication. Yes, medication might happen. Yes, people might need sedation. Yes, they might need an antipsychotic they might need a whole lot of things of course i'm not saying that we don't do those things but what's happened historically is that and this is what happened to me and so many others you just get kind of plonked into this service and it's just alien and foreign and traumatizing we need to move past that model we need to move to services where there is this real connection with one human being have a conversation with another human being about maybe about you know, the terror that they feel, the distress that they're undergoing, the uncertainty of what is happening to them, the illness, you know, taking hold of a person. So when we have a clinical approach, we just put in, we put a person in a corner and if we just continue to do that approach, then the person won't recover. Mm, mm. So there's a richness about the peer work, you know, contribution. The way forward will be where we have these these roles people will be working hand in hand but i do think that the services will probably be more approachable and i would like to think though i don't know because we're not there yet that the outcomes will be much better for people but most most importantly i think this is probably what we need to talk about is that we do know and we still do this is that people come into services and they are traumatized mm. they are re-traumatized and they are traumatized by their contact yeah. with services because we're trying to medicalize treatment we're trying to you know really trying to, f to fix people or just to you know to contain people when really when people have experiences that are so scary and terrifying and unexpected and life challenging you know these crises how do we have a human face to it so what's the priority here the mm. priority is that we are able to support people to mm. move through 
this to move through these crises in a way where they can come out of it and i mean i think ultimately with my own experience and the experiences that i had and also thinking about it on you know reflection over the years is that absolutely had a spiritual crisis absolutely absolutely had you know psychiatric crisis of course that's what occurred with my unwellness mm. and so i have spent years uh, sometimes deliberately sometimes consciously sometimes unconsciously unpacking mm. why did that happen how did that happen you know but then at the end of the day here i am so many years further down the track and been so fortunate to for many years now don't take medication, have remained well, know what works for my mental health, keeping things in place, all that kind of stuff. You know, what is it about that, you know, that, that that's so special? So services have to change and mm. services have to grow. Can I just change tack quickly? Sure. So I'm just thinking that, you know, we sort of, it's, it's, it's so not the elephant in the room, but it is a little bit like the elephant in the room, obviously about COVID-19 and what's happening with this. Tragically, what is going to happen, what's unfolding before us now. And, you know, I don't want to be, you know, like seriously, like alarmist. Mm. So I don't want to talk about a tsunami of mental health problems. But we know that we know that what's happening globally is that people's mental health will continue to suffer. Yes. And what we're facing now, we'll be dealing with for the foreseeable future. Yeah, yeah. So I've been impacted by this. We've talked about this before, and, you know, you've had conversations with friends and family. I felt, I felt isolated. I felt really quite anxious at times as well. Um, it's been incredibly difficult. So I'd be interested in your thoughts, Dan, about, about how you see not only your role, but also how you've coped well. Or how you are coping? Yeah, no, it's 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 really it's really interesting, and I think for me the COVID situation has call it confirmation bias, but it's kind of uh, an example that I can now use to to um, prove or confirm what what my view on mental health has been now for quite some years, which is really based around this this quote and i'm going to paraphrase but it's something like it's it's no sign of health to be well adjusted to a profoundly sick society and so you know i think if you're not experiencing a level of anxiety or or fear or apprehension or or worry or something and i'm not talking like to a crippling level, but a degree of it at this time, then, then I'm almost more concerned about that than 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 the than the opposite. Because, mm. you know, to be human is to um, to feel, and right now what we're all feeling is uh, a global. We're in the midst of a global crisis, pandemic. And so it just plays into my view that it is part of the human condition to have um, stress and anxiety and all that. And so it's actually more about how do we cope and what are the tools that we that we can can have at our disposal. I'm not sure if I said this on the podcast before, but uh, it it bears saying again. When this all began, I had a friend who was telling me how he's doing not too bad and and almost. Like he was kind of joking, like saying me and him are almost at a bit of a advantage because we've we've done so much 
uh, healing work and self-development work because of our own traumatic experiences and stuff in life that he, he was like, well, this is just normal for me. And like, it was less about it being normal for him, but more about seeing people in his world and people in general whom it is not normal for to experience, you know, quite a substantial level of stress on a daily basis. And he actually kind of metaphorically gave me a kick in the bum to to put myself out there more because he said, you've got stuff, we've got stuff to offer through mm. this time because we've experienced some types of, um, I don't know, challenges and mm. tools for managing stress. You know, some people are more stress resilient, some people are less. And it's no secret that um, I'm quite a sensitive person and so mm. I can get overwhelmed if I'm not managing my mm. my world well. And so um, I feel a great uh, empathy and compassion for all these people that have just been thrust into uh, huge amounts of unrest and disruption to their daily life, um, you know, it could be losing job, it could be financial stress, but it could just simply be seeing what is happening in the world and wondering mm. where the heck are we going as a species. And so, um, and for those that know I'm kind of bringing in the, the Myers-Briggs stuff often in, in the podcast, you know, for those of us that are intuitive, we're also more inclined to future forecast, mm. to project. So to try and say, this is happening, this is happening, this is happening, and that means that in two and five years' time, we're going to be here. Mm. Um, now, we can't do that mm. uh, with any reliable no. accuracy, but it doesn't mean to say us intuitives don't try and put the puzzle together and try and future project. So, mm. short answer to your question is, I'm just less now, but when, when COVID happened after an initial what the heck is going on and, and whirlwind and yeah, anxiety and, and, and catastrophizing me personally, catastrophizing and all this was like, hold on a sec, you know, breathe, manage, manage the input of information. Mm. Don't spend your life on social. And I actually had this physical repulsion away from Facebook um, for about, I think about four to five days. I just didn't touch it. And it wasn't like I put a ban on myself. It was like, mm. I I feel unwell to go on to this thing because it felt like, and someone said, I can't remember how they worded it, but it felt like the garbage dumping ground for everyone's, you know, undealt with emotional stuff. Mm. And I'm not exempt from that, you mm. know. I can I can do that too. And so, yeah, managing our media intake, managing my media intake, I think, I mean, I think it's for everybody, but, and just implementing those things that you and I have had a, a lifetime of learning through our professional lives mm. um, and I assume a lifetime of applying personally as well, mm. whether it be mindfulness or whatever. Mm. So um, I can't fully remember the question, but that's my thoughts yeah, about no. COVID and what... Yeah, and I wanted to ask you that question because I think that it's probably important to talk about it and mm. I think that it's important to acknowledge it because what I... So this, this, it's so multi-layered and so the conversations I've been having with clients in my practice have been about, you know, how are you going and you know what's what's been happening for you during these times and some of the clients have been saying to me i love it 
you know, I had a client only a week ago who said to me, I don't want the world to change. And in some ways it would be better if we could just stay in lockdown and then I would be, I'd be at my happiest. And I'm not going to deny her that and I'm not going to challenge that, but I'm just interested in what your experience is and, you know, how you're coping in the world because this Mm. is part of the conversations Mm. that we have in the room. Yes. And then other people have been, of course, very challenged by it and what it, you know, what it means for them. And they felt not only just restricted in, in so many ways, but psychologically they felt they've been having these emotions and experiencing these experiences that they've never had before. And then I talk to friends and I think about myself and listening to what you've just said. And then I think about the students that I teach. And students have been, well, like, welcome to my world. Yes, exactly. <laughs> this is yeah, what it's exactly. been like. And, that yeah. we, and, and what you've been saying and what, you know, what I've been sharing with students is that well, we can teach you something. You know, we mm. can actually, we have something that we can offer. So this notion of lived experience, anxiety and, you know, heartfelt suffering and pain, it's not that others are exempt from that because they haven't had lived experience in the way we've been sharing it today. But there is something that can absolutely be offered. And so this is part of what is happening with all of this is that not only we acknowledge that there's going to be a huge toll on society in terms of mental ill health, there's going to be a huge toll and it will be, you know, for the foreseeable future. But we're also acknowledging that there is now a space and maybe an honouring of, of lived experience about what we can do. And I really... I, I can't say the word like or enjoy. Mm. I'm not, I can't say that, but I am actually really pleased to see that these conversations are becoming more open mm. about, you know, people are saying that I'm, I'm struggling and I'm having difficult and I feel, I feel anxious all the time and I can't sleep. These conversations are becoming more public. And what's happened, the history of mental health and mental illness has been that it has been shunned mm. and it has been, you know, people have been treated like lepers and locked away. And it's only been in the 20th century that, you know, a little bit of cracks of light have opened and institutions have, you know, have, you know, opened their doors and people have learned that they can actually live with mental illness and they can actually be happy and they can be fulfilled. Because mm. what we haven't discussed, another conversation for another day, but, you know, for people that are listening who haven't had an experience of mental health, mental ill health, is that people will continue to experience anxiety. People will continue to maybe even have episodic, you know, experiences of of mental ill health. And so unlike a child perhaps who breaks breaks their arm and you've got a complete, you know, healing, the fracture is completely healed and the person, that child recovers full functioning and will grow into a fully functioning human being, what happens for so many people with mental illnesses that we don't talk about cure, mm. we talk about recovery through this suffering and through this adversity in so many different ways, you know, emotional and social, obviously psychological, financial suffering that happens for people when there's these interruptions that mental illness brings mm. is that the challenges that it that brings up is that we can, you know, how do we face these challenges? If this conversation, if this dialogue is beginning to be transparent and open and honest, it's actually going to transform ourselves, our society in a way that we might be actually be more loving and kind and generous mm. and we might be able to offer more. And for those people who are skilled and for those people who have, you know, had lived experience or we've talked about sharing that lived experience for those people who are well, um, we have something to offer 
we have something to offer even more now. So mm. there is a requirement for us to even step up, I think, even more yeah. to be able to, to do more and to offer more as well. But if we can transform our society and our, and our cultures and if we can actually talk more openly about the experiences that COVID has brought for so many of us, then surely we'll be a better society. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I agree. I think there are many ways of framing what's happening now. And uh, it's easy to, like, we all know the negative stories, let's, you know, the, the, the hard and the painful. Um, and I don't want to minimize that. I'm not one to pretend there's not that darkness happening. Uh, but there is a story, there is a framing of this all that we are going through a, a rebirthing or a, a leveling up as society and it, I don't know if that's what you're trying to get to but that's what, a bit of what I'm hearing from you is you know we can take this opportunity to become better humans to each other and to um, yeah to, to become to be better to do better um, yeah. we don't want to be overtly philosophical but I think for all of us whether we're whether we think a little or we think a lot or we feel a little or we feel a lot or we've had lived experience or we haven't had lived experience I mean there is an opportunity there's so much more than opportunity but there is a necessity for us to actually change and grow Mm. and you know whether we can talk about it because I've listened to different people you've listened to different people who have shared their ideas about why this could be happening I don't know why yeah. it's just yeah. here. it's yeah, yeah. here so we have to deal with it That's but right. the thing is that what the human race maybe does need to do is that we need to actually take a long hard look at what we have done and where we maybe need to go because I'm not I don't like to see myself as being a pessimist but I've lived long enough on the earth without sounding like an old fart and you've lived long enough on, on this planet to know that we have done an appalling job, mm. not only as a human race, but in terms of just having this real sense of what does it mean to be able to live a life where I can not only take responsibility for my actions and how I relate to other people, but how I can be actually responsible for what's happening inside. So yep. this notion of doing subconscious you know, work, of doing conscious work, of actually really wanting to be a better person and what does that actually look like? So mindful that, you know, all behavior serves a purpose. You know, we're all engaged in this. We talk about being in this together. If we're not in it together, then, of course, we are just going to fall over. Mm. And so the only way that we can actually rise above all of this is to actually change what we do. Mm. I actually saw this really powerful YouTube clip. It was was a, a father talking to his son like a fairy tale. Okay, yeah. And I, it, was, it was probably in just before the end of March, so it had been all, all quite new. And it, was just, and it was just these beautiful words about this father talking to his son about why it had happened and how it happened. And I'm actually getting a little bit emotional mm. now talking about it, but I got really upset when, I actually, when it had finished after I'd, after I'd seen it because I thought to myself, and I am getting a bit emotional, I thought, if we don't do this, I mean, this is this is the time that we need to actually look at ourselves and we need to change the world. Mm. But we need to change the way that we see the world because if we change the way that we see the world, then we'll change the way that we'll walk in the world and we'll do it differently. And I was actually, I feel overwhelmed by almost this, this real grief that I thought that we're not going to do this, that mm. when this passes, mm. when it passes, that we are just going to go back to the way that we were before. 
I think I've realized now is that there is no going back to how we were before because it has so. already fundamentally changed. Yes. But we have to make it better mm. and it has to be different. So this whole notion of, you know, talk to use that word revolution, there has to there has to be and I, I am feeling more hopeful now, you know, so you mm. know, I feel like doing like I do with my clients on a scale of one to ten. <laughs> yeah. That's what is right. your level of hope? Well, yeah. it's probably about a six now. Mm. Mm. It's okay. I'm feeling more hopeful. Mm that maybe we will change enough, we will grow enough, we will transform enough to make it better and different. Mm. Because if we don't, we're going to lose it all. You know, Jung talks a lot about what happens with the psyche and what happens, you know, you know, collectively if we don't do something, yes. it's we are not going to survive. So I'm hoping, you know, without being super philosophical about it, but this is really important what we're discussing because what's happening in the world is absolutely so challenging and, and so terrifying and so uncertain. If we don't actually create a new world, we just, we actually, the, the, the world's just not going to be here for us anyway, I don't mm -hmm. think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, that's my thoughts. But We've yeah. got to do our work. Absolutely. Yeah. And a lot of uh, a lot of people they didn't have time to do it have had time. So I'm uh, I'm also hopeful that 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 stuff will will uh, materialize. We'll see the the positive flow on of that in the next couple of years. You know, for some reason the person that comes to mind is like a Russell Brand type character who was you know addict with um just the hard and fast lifestyle, and he's had this spiritual awakening and this. This, this shift and this change and you know I'm hoping that there'll be more of that that nature of and because that came from introspection <clears throat> he went and did a bunch of meditation and got the drugs out of his system and had a clear head you know um, and that kind of change I think is the invitation of this time mm. uh, especially for those of us that have been um, home more and more time to ourselves and that yeah. kind of thing you mentioned the word, you know, mindfulness before. And, of course, mindfulness is bandied around an awful lot now in terms of, you know, it's a product that mm. we can buy. It's an app that we can use. But, of course, what happens with mindfulness is that we're just living in the moment and we're embracing this. And, of course, what's happened with because people have lost their jobs and they've lost that continuity and that certainty that they had in their lives, what do we do with these internal world, worlds that we are now facing? What do we do with these emotions and feelings that we haven't had before? But what do we do in our environment when it's so different now? So we can either do something positive with it, we can stay the same, but there's no future in staying the same, or we can go backwards. So what will happen for so many people is there are people who, you know, are not you're being trite here, but there are there are moments of enlightenment. There are like these little sartoris mm. that people will claim and gain, and you know there are people that will actually be able to share that knowledge. But of course, the flip side is that there will be so many other people that will struggle, and will fall. Or will stumble and we need to you know as a human race but you know the work that you do is so powerful and so important and i try and do that in the work that i do i love being able to be able to sit in a room and also to educate people mm. and just to be able to to talk with people about what's working and making mm. things work well thanks a lot for coming and Thank um you. i'm glad you got to see my new well people listening can't see but my fairly new awesome. counseling and <laughs> coaching and podcasting and studying and whatever else space i'm sure we'll chat again whether we're being recorded or not absolutely um, but yeah no it's been it's been a pleasure to have you along and thanks for your insights and thanks for your honesty and um we'll leave it there and thank you for your time no worries thanks so much
So there you go. Thanks again, Jamie, for sharing with us um, your time and your wisdom. Really enjoyed hearing about Jamie's experiences and that the peer work and the lived experience of people is becoming more front and center. I think that's going to go a long way to reducing the stigma that we see now in the industry. So I hope you all got something out of that as well. Now, don't forget to find us on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, we've got posts up there on every episode. And if you want to drop a bit of feedback or comment about what you liked about the episode, that goes a long way. And we love to hear from you. And also, if you really want some bonus points, add a review on Apple Podcasts and that'll boost our ratings as well. So hope you enjoyed the episode. We will see you next time.